everyone, and welcome. This is episode 246 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Brewers podcast, part of the MKE Tailgate Network. I am James, joined here on draft night as we do this. But didn't really expect to be doing a draft night uh, record. You know, I feel like this is an NFL podcast. Well, almost, like a but... normal sport, we wouldn't be doing one because the season yes. is still going on and it just happens to be right now for no good reason at all. So we're doing it. <laughs> Well, I mean, they had to wait for the for the college season to end, right? Like that's the the whole part of this. They used to do it sort of to the tail end of the college season, and that was messy. So yeah. you'd have weird things like guys being drafted while playing in the College World Series, and that was always entertaining. Like yeah. a guy would be like literally <laughs> standing on base, and people from the dugout would yell, "Hey, you got drafted by the Mariners!" And the guy would be all- like, "Yay!" <laughs> so I mean, that sounds awesome, and we should definitely do that again or something like it. Yeah, and suddenly you had like fan bases really invested in the pitch count for this one pitcher <laughs> in the College World Series and, and things like that. I feel like we might have gone through that with uh, Taylor Youngman. We right? did. Wasn't he in the College World Series uh, when the Brewers drafted him? Suddenly we all became very invested in Texas and what their uh, coach was doing with Taylor Youngman. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, just always generally weird to have this draft in the middle of a season, even weirder to have it as part of the all-star festivities <laughs> pushed back a little later. I don't know what the ideal time would be to do this draft. Cause I mean, the college baseball season is kind of wonky and stuff. I don't know, Ryan, if you have any ideas on a better time to do it. Yeah. I mean, that was just discussed. Uh, Jim Callis and our own um, James Anderson. were talking about that on James's podcast this week. And they said late June. And I think that makes the most sense. I think sometime in late June, uh, earlier than this for sure, because everybody's just been sitting around doing nothing for like three weeks. And actually, a lot of scouts have been out scouting for next year's draft, working on the high school crop and all the the showcase events that happen over the summer are all, all over the place. So it's kind of stupid that way for teams it's like uh you know in the nfl when a team is playing like a monday night game and all the guys who do like game planning and watching film and all that stuff already like a day and a half before the game have moved on to the next opponent like they're already scouting the next week and not even paying attention to what's going on in that it's kind of what's like i think going on in a lot of draft rooms is I think a lot of teams put this to bed weeks ago and have just been sitting and waiting because it's not like since the combine happened, which I believe was in like mid to late June, that there's really been any new information that's come out of any of these guys. Nobody's playing. Nobody's uh, being showcased. There's not really much of anything happening. So, yeah, late June. They should just do this, get it done in late June and stop trying to make this an all-star festivity thing. It's just weird and dumb. Yeah, I, I've also kind of found it interesting that there are some theories that this has kind of stalled the trade deadline season a little bit because front offices are so wrapped up in talent evaluations and draft boards right now that they haven't really even started fielding calls for the deadline, which is also later this year. So I feel like it just kind of put everything at a standstill and, and I don't know. It, it seems harder to get into it this year than than even previous years to me, but Uh, As we just started recording this, the Brewers made their first round pick. We'll get to that in a minute. First, let's get the business out of the way. A reminder, if you'd like to help support us, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash mketailgate for as little as two bucks a month. 
that gets you question priority on all of the podcasts on the MKE Tailgate Network. Five bucks a month gets you that question priority, plus some exclusive podcasts, including the Minor League Extra with Ryan and James Anderson from RotoWire. And hey, if you were a patron and listened to the MLB <laughs> Draft Preview Edition wow. of the Minor League Extra, uh, James freaking nailed it. Uh, he sure he called the Brewers pick. So uh, just as we got on here that the Brewers made their pick, um, and, uh, we were just kind of laughing because of course the first thing we found on Eric Brown's scouting report was a, uh, comp to Craig council based on his batting stance. So I, mm-hmm. I don't know how I feel about that, but Ryan, I guess, what do we know about the Brewers first round pick? Just real, I guess, quick and dirty notes. And you can always get into more detail on the minor league extra. Yeah. I mean, he's a college shortstop and seems likely to stay at short. And uh, the the Craig Council comp is one because of the swing. He uh, has his arms extended and above his head, which anybody who's watched the Brewers in the Craig Council <laughs> era knows that that uh, thing completely. And as soon as I started reading that, I'm like, wait, was this the guy that James mentioned in the podcast? Because he he did bring that up, and then we went back and we we're like, oh yeah, that was the one of the guys that he uh, he talked about as kind of like an off the board sort of sort of pick. Uh, Baseball America has him ranked 55th, which I'm sure is going to drive uh, a lot of discourse on Twitter. I'm sure it's happening right now as we speak uh, on Twitter.com because there are all these names that were higher than that. And I just want to remind people that uh, the Brewers have in recent past taken guys that were had quote unquote fallen to them uh, like Corey Ray and Garrett Mitchell who were ranked higher than where the Brewers took them. And it was considered a coup that they got them where they got them. And you could even go back to, like, say, Eric Arnett and Taylor Youngman for other examples of that. And uh, look how that worked out. So just because the guys ranked number 55 by Baseball America means, you know, relatively nothing in in this whole thing. So uh, interesting guy. We'll see where, uh, where this goes. I think that... The thing about the Craig Council comp is that that's a physical comp. That's not a an outlay or like a, a a total like where he's going to end up comp. But actually, if you look at Craig Council's career, if he ends up having the Craig Council career, I think a <laughs> lot of people would go, "Oh, that's disappointing. You don't want that in a first rounder." Actually, you'd be really, you, really you, you do, yeah. Craig yeah. Council's kind of awesome, actually. Yeah, <laughs> he was a 23 war player for his career, which is quite good. He peaked at, with a, a very Jace Peterson 5.5 war season um, for Arizona, <laughs> um, where he didn't hit particularly well, but defended the crap. But um, he was a a good, solid player, kind of forever. He was very good at getting on base for the vast majority of his career. He is a 3.42 career on base percentage, and he peaked a lot higher than that. He was um, consistently a good, you know contact guy get on base guy so uh, and also always always a good defender Craig Council for his entire career was a plus shortstop um, even though he played till he was 40 so that's a I remember an old Tom Tango quote about Craig Council which is um, if anybody ever asks me how I'm going to raise my kids it's uh, 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 throw righty bat lefty and uh, that's my answer (laughs) to that question and it was in reference to how long he was able to play just based on having that skill set yeah and don't be surprised to hear this either more walks 39 than strikeouts this year uh that was 28 so more more walks than strikeouts that is a thing that they like and that they generally gravitate towards since i just said that tango quote i should mention very 
very clearly that Eric Brown is, in fact, a right-handed batter, and Craig Council was not, which matters. So, yeah, just throwing that out there so that nobody yells at me later. Yeah, always want to avoid the yelling on Twitter. There's already enough of it today on Sunday that uh, I've, I'm choosing to avoid. <laughs> uh, all right, so hopefully uh, this first-round pick works out better than a lot of the Brewers' recent first-round picks. But, you know, the the rounds after that is typically where the Brewers have really found a lot of success. So we'll see what happens with that. And as always, as I mentioned, you can go and sign up and become a $5 patron and get that minor league extra. Cause I'm sure Ryan, you and in James will be breaking down the draft at some point after all of this and, and kind of going over the Brewers draft class, right? Oh, in the relatively uh, recent future or near future, I suppose. Recent future. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, exactly. Recent future. I guess speaking of the recent future, it, it, it hasn't been great for the big league club. Uh, I guess maybe predictably, I know we all kind of felt this way. The Brewers kind of limping into the all-star break again, ended up losing three out of four in what was kind of a really weird, bizarre series in San Francisco. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, won, won the first game, probably should have won the second game, could have won the third game. Instead, they lose three out of four. Um you know, we, we saw Josh Hader basically quadruple his ERA in the last week and possibly had the worst meltdown of his career in San Francisco on a Saturday night. Or was that Friday night? I, I lost track. It was it was all bad. <laughs> Saturday night was the loss due to the uh, questionable at best buck call. Right. So we've got some questions about that. And yes. then they basically punted on Sunday because it's the Sunday before the all star break. And that tends to become a thing. So I guess Twitter was grumpy about this all day on Sunday. Uh, let's just start with Paul. How upset or concerned are you about kind of this another mid-July swoon heading into the All-Star break, <laughs> even though I think you and I and everybody else kind of called it? Um, I mean, kind of concerned. I, I do think that the Brewers do see the rest coming a little bit more than everybody else, and they do try and get people right um, and keep them out if they need to keep them out. Like, uh, it's very possible if the All-Star break wasn't about to occur that maybe Tyrone Taylor gets accelerated a little bit uh, to get back sooner. But instead, you kind of extend the guy into the break to get the most out of the recovery. Um, but uh, that said, I mean, also a lot of the reasons that they've lost lately is Hater blowing up. And I mean, it would have been the easiest thing in the world to, um, you know, on that one appearance he had against, I think it was the Twins where he didn't pay anybody, to maybe send him on phantom IR for a little bit through the break and let that arm rest up a little bit. Um, and they, they didn't do that. They kept bringing him out and um, he's been kind of bad for uh, a while now. So, I mean, I have concerns because I think Hader is one of their like three most important players. And if he um, is bad or injured, they're kind of screwed a little bit. So um, concern there. Um, and, you know, I'm not concerned about the ways that they lost because losses are just losses. It's just one game. But, it's not good to see. Um, the Grand Slam is the one that's concerning because it's Hater getting beat up. But like the balk was just stupid. What <laughs> wasn't a balk? It was uh, a bad call. And losing games on bad calls is just whatever random stupid nonsense. Um, you know, but same same old stuff. Like Hater's the reason for concern. The the continued offensive struggles now and then are cause for concern. All the normal stuff. Uh, but the the big change is Hater. That's the one to keep an eye on out of the break. Yeah, so the game you were talking about, it was actually against Pittsburgh that he had no whiffs. That was on uh, the 8th. Okay. So that would have been, yeah. And then the next game, he came out against Minnesota and had six whiffs. 
So, and then it was back to the next game against Minnesota. That was abbreviated, though. Like, he only ended up getting one whiff at that point. Yeah, whatever. Point is, is that there's <laughs> all just... The hater thing is a, a huge mystery. We spent a lot of time talking about it on open Twitter on Sunday and then yep. in our, our group messages trying to go mm -hmm. back and forth about it. And every time I think I sort of have a handle on it, I it ends up being, you know, I find some other fact and it's like, oh, that that actually goes the other direction. So I, I don't know quite what to do with hater at this point other than you have to like... So he, he did not K any twins on... Uh... Uh, on July 13th, for the record. Just throwing that out there. No, on the 13th. Didn't... On the 12th, he had six whiffs, is what I was I was looking yeah. at, the, just the number of whiffs. And he struck out the side. And yeah. then the next day, he didn't retire a single batter. Yeah. They lost. Oh, that. was that he didn't? Okay. I was listening to that yeah. in the car driving home from Vegas with my yeah, COVID go. brain. <laughs> yes. He, so. he retired nobody. He struck out nobody and just got rocked. So it, the thing about his whole performance is it is just really weird. You look at the fact that, he, like, we've we've talked about this in the past. There was this run in 2019 where he was leaving the ball down. And he tends to work best when he is up at the top of the zone and maybe even a little bit above. Guys will swing at stuff that's up out of the zone for him because it looks better than what it is. And it's not hittable, but it looks like it when it comes out of his hand. So that tends to be where he works best. And when he's down, that was a problem. So I, I went to that, and the first thing I saw was that yeah, when you look at where he was giving up home runs this week, it tended to be down in the middle part of the zone. He wasn't up. He wasn't above the zone. He was down in that middle part of the zone, and that's where he was giving up that hard contact. The problem with that, and it's true that that's, that is actually true, yep. but the problem is, is that he had been working in those areas this year absolutely fine. A lot, actually, had been working in those, those zones, in those exact uh, spaces, a lot this year and he hadn't gotten hit like nobody had had tagged him for any extra base hits in those zones and now all of a sudden he was getting absolutely lit up so i'm not sure if it is location or if it's a pitch quality issue or if it's just you know a confluence of a whole bunch of things i think paul you pointed out that it, like darren ruff seems like a particularly bad matchup for him yep and that uh, he may have been selected specifically because of that yeah, we've talked about this on this podcast earlier this season. Um, baseball Prospectus, before the season started, wrote a piece about um, how the Giants are managing to generate far more offense than they're projected to uh, based on not just platoon matchups, but like sort of swing plane matchups of hitters versus specific types of pitchers. And Darren Ruff was mentioned specifically in that article as a type of hitter who uh, can't hit anything up in the zone, but feasts on low pitches. And, you know, if you if, if he haters locating high, he might have been helpless, but he crushed a middle in changeup um, that is in his absolute wheelhouse. And uh, that might just be part of it. Um, I do wonder, too, if um, haters maybe helped slash disguised a little bit just based on the, the Brewers not being in save situations against quality opponents nearly as much as they are against garbage opponents. I, we know that they have huge uh, splits of over 500, under 500. And you know, he can maybe work in the zone a little bit more easily against like the Reds and the Pirates. When you run into like the Phillies got him earlier this year, they're a bad defensive team, but they have a bunch of big bats. Um, and, uh, you know, the better offense is that might just be kind of the problem. And twins have a not great offense, but um, he might be feasting on dregs a little bit. Mm, but 
the Brewers, when they play close games, tend to play them against good teams. They this year against teams above 500. Those were the teams that they were playing in close games against and having success. So actually, if you look at the the games, I, I had this split up before. See if I can find it again. But uh, he had been like when they when they play and when they beat the bad teams, they tend to pound their brains in because they put up a ton of runs on them and they're not even close. So Hader doesn't pitch in those games. Um, where they've been having a lot of close games. Sorry, I can't find it. But well, I mean, kind of. But he has his most saves against the Pirates. He's got six against them, um, and his second most against the Cubs. He's got five against them. Um, so that's eleven of his next most against the Cardinals. He's got four against them. Okay, so um, legitimate offense there. Yeah, they're good-ish, I suppose. Oh, offensively they are. <laughs> To Baltimore, been good. Hard to say what hard to say on Baltimore these days, honestly. Yeah, they're sort of in flux, aren't they? And that's good. It's yep. good that there's baseball it in flux. Good. Same with the Mariners. It's good Two that stuff's in Washington. Flux. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I just hope the Orioles keep winning so the Brewers get credit for beating them because they're yeah, over five hundred. Um. Yeah. I mean, the thing with Hater, right, is like he was dynamite up until like literally a month ago. He had a zero ERA up until June 5th or something like that. And then after that, it kind of exploded. Uh, That Philly outing that Paul noted was his first runs given up. He gave up two solo home runs there. And I think that's the thing too, that I think is kind of concerning people, right? Is when he blows up, it's really hard contact and it's home runs given up, right? He doesn't really get paper cut to death all that often. Mm Mm-hmm. So he's given up multiple hits to uh, six teams, uh, five against the Giants that we just saw. And then it's Minnesota, Philadelphia, Toronto, and then it's happening against Pittsburgh and the Cubs. So um, there's better offenses there than the general norm, plus a couple of, you know, if they play the Pittsburgh and the Cubs all the time, it's going to happen once in a while. Mm-hmm. That's fair. All right. I guess all this negative talk about Josh Hader uh, and a lot of concern about him right over the last uh, couple of weeks or so, of course, led to a Patreon question. Our first one this week comes from Adam Post saying, technically not a question, but please quell my fears that Hader is turning into Craig Kimbrell or worse. So, of course, Craig Kimbrell, kind of a similar career trajectory right out of the gate uh, was excellent. Actually, I think he had, what, a better FIP than Mariano Rivera or something for the first few years of his career was yeah. could have legitimately been considered the best reliever of all time. And now he's not. So I guess, Paul, relievers tend to fall off quickly, but yeah. any concern that so, that's what's happening? Not really. I mean, if you're going to worry about Hater, it's, it's probably a short-term worry. And a lot of things can cause blips like this, including just randomness. So... um that's always our, our sort of first go-to. The second one is um, an injury. However, those usually show up pretty quickly and obviously in lack of velocity. And that's one thing Hader did not show. He was still mm-hmm. running it up to 97 with his fastball um, with, I would say, not that much effort. It looked, if anything, like his command was disappointing him a little bit. And uh, I don't know, that can be an indicator of certain things, but usually velocity goes first. So I suspect it's just a little blip. It may very well be that... Um, you know, he got used to cruising against crap and then ran into some some opponents where he had to be a little more precise and um, just couldn't do it. It could just be that he's been used a lot lately and he needs a couple of days off. Um, that happens too. Relievers just 
go through dead arm periods or lack of control for a little bit, but he's probably fine. You would see more symptoms of him uh, declining if he was not going to recover from this. This is most likely just a little blip, and I'm guessing the all-star break will probably um, suit it out just fine. Right, and there's also the personal stuff going on with him where he has a, a newborn that is having some health issues, and it was a difficult pregnancy, and he left the team for a time at one point during the season. So there's all that stuff going on, too. And he he said even before this latest bit of blow up that he was begging out of the All-Star game so he could go home and spend time with his family, which I don't think anybody begrudges him that one bit. That was, you know, perfectly in keeping with the way things are done these days and just a good, smart thing to do in general. And I don't think we want him pitching extra anyway at this point. So (laughs) or at any point, really, like just have Josh Hader throw as little as possible and make it matter when it does. Um, I was going through and looking at his game logs throughout history and trying to pick out other times where he had given up bunches of home runs like this. And I found four other instances where he had given up three home runs in the matter of three games, like in, in three appearances. So this is not new. And I mentioned this last week on the podcast, too, that like when Josh Hader has problems, this is what it looks like. He gives up a ton of hard contact and then has to like figure out, okay, why are guys, you know, teeing off on me? And in the past has generally gotten that sorted out relatively quickly. Yeah. So like, this is not a new issue. This is not something that we haven't seen before from Josh Hader. When Josh Hader struggles, it's, this is what it looks like. So I, I think the horror show on Friday and Earth's be, yeah, Friday night Friday, in, in San Francisco. Like, that is an exceptional situation. And, like, I don't think we've ever seen him have a game quite like that before. And hopefully we never will again. But <clears throat> eventually everybody, even the very best pitcher, is going to have a, a horror show game where it just is absolutely awful for them, where everything goes wrong. And that was that was the game for that. So I'm with Paul on this. I would not worry about long term here any more than you already were i mean i think we we've all just sort of been saying well at some point hater is not going to be this good uh because and i compared him on, on twitter i don't know if you guys saw this this is a one thirty in the morning tweet um i compared <laughs> him to a ferrari did you guys see this i did not i did not because it was one thirty in the morning <clears throat> well i mean there it, it was there the next morning i didn't delete it or anything so um the idea being that basically Josh Hader is like a Ferrari because when it's working, when everything is operational, it is like he is a perfect machine. He is a baseball pitching machine, and you don't want anything like better than that at its peak. Like He is absolutely filthy dominant, and it's as good as it gets. But the thing about Ferraris is they're prone to getting something like slightly wrong with them, and then they can break down, and there can be problems. So <laughs> All right. That seems to sort of be the Josh Hader thing in general, and he doesn't break down often. It's not like this is happening a lot, but it happens enough that you sort of go, okay, the, the, when, when this happens, we sort of can identify it and know he's not quite right, this isn't quite working the way it's supposed to, and we need to figure something out. And that was what Craig Council said after that game. I rarely stay on to watch the comments after a game, especially a West Coast game. But my sleep cycle was so screwed up at that point that I wasn't going to bed anyway. So I was like, you know what? (laughs) Let's listen to what he says. And I think he must have said in that press conference five or six times, we have to figure it out. We have to figure it out. We have to figure it out. 
So yeah. I think they're also mystified as to what was going on, or at least they were on Friday night. Hopefully they get some clarity on that. They've gotten some clarity or they get some clarity before, you know, play resumes for the weekend on Friday. Yeah. Well, one of the worry thing, worrisome things about Hater is that someday if he does kind of blow up completely, he just how how crushed he gets you know he, i don't think he can ever fall back on savvy or um you know he's not a crafty lefty he is the uncraftiest lefty that there is in the history <laughs> of baseball and um if he blows up and they don't realize it quickly enough he will cost them games by by being extended terrible closer but uh you know ho- hopefully it's obvious when it happens and they can diagnose it fine I will say, too, uh, in the vein of this not being super unusual, I pulled up his career splits here uh, by month, and July is by far the worst month that he's that he has in his career for his for his career averages. Uh, so obviously, you know, he always typically comes out gangbusters out of the start of the season. He's got a 157 career ERA in April and March in uh was that 51 career innings, 42 games in May? He's got a 0.77 ERA in June, a 1.09 ERA in July for his career in 40 games. He has a 5.06 ERA. I do so, wonder if he like gets a haircut in July and doesn't hide <laughs> I was the ball. Say, as well. That's my favorite theory that that we tossed about. Yeah, that's the July haircut always does him in because he's fine in August. Then a 3.12 yep. ERA and that then that a 3.08 ERA. All <laughs> yep, exactly. So, uh, I mean, the the ERA is over three in the second half, too. Obviously, not as dominating, and and you're not going to keep up a 1.09 ERA all year, right? But uh, it does seem like typically July tends to get him, and July also by far his uh, most home runs allowed by month. He's allowed 15 career home runs in july uh these i guess not by far because september october also has 12 but then you're in the single digits so again maybe indicates that by the end of these first and second halves he kind of tends to wear down a little bit so uh hopefully the extended break helps him and and i'm not too worried given those career numbers right He, he typically has these blips and then he rebounds. He finds something again. He finds a way to finish those pitches, get those whiffs. So I'm not considering him Craig Kimbrell yet, but uh, hopefully the Brewers do trade him before that happens. Well, and I think it's also worth noting that Craig Kimbrell has gone through multiple cycles now where he is ineffective and it looks like he's washed and then he's good again. And then it looks like he's washed and then he's good again. And that is not unusual for guys that start at a high place like, say, Craig Kimbrell was for a long time or Josh Hader, maybe down the road uh, where you you see like a cycle like that. Uh, hopefully it's not now. Hopefully it's not something that happens while he's with the Brewers, because I don't think any of us particularly <laughs> expect him to be with the Brewers on opening day in 2024. But maybe, I guess, but probably not. So. No, yeah, I, I, it's hard to imagine, especially given the presence of Devin Williams. That seems like yeah. a very easy sell for them to say, you know, you know what? It's it's time. Yep. Yep. And Devin Williams may be the only brewer actually pitching in the All-Star game now because Corbin Burns opted out of, of throwing. He'll, he'll still go, uh, but Woo. he's not going to throw either. Yes. Much to Paul's celebration. There was much rejoicing. Uh, so Corbin's lined up to start the first game after the All-Star break, but Devin Williams does get to go, and 
maybe hopefully we'll see him pitch too. And Corbin also has a baby at home, right? Somebody mentioned that today. Yeah, He's, new-ish. Yeah, new-ish, I, I don't yeah. know if if um if if the the baby boy I think is a boy, judging by his Instagram, <laughs> was born either early in the year or in in the off season. So, uh, but yes, also a newborn at home. So, uh, but he was at least attending. Uh, planning on attending the festivities, but he's also from California, so mm-hmm. um, not that far away. NorCal, right. though, I think, um, not SoCal. Yeah, right. So I guess let's quickly talk about the other painful game of the series. <laughs> uh, it wasn't quite a balk off because it was the eighth inning, yeah. but uh, really demoralizing way to lose a game, especially when the Brewers come back and tie it in the eighth. Uh, next Patreon question comes from James Vandenberg asking, please define a balk for me. Thank you, Paul. Yep. You're our rules and legal expert. What's a balk? So uh, generally speaking, a balk is an attempt to deceive a base runner. Um, and specifically, there are 13 actions prohibited by the rule book that constitute a balk. Um, and they, they kind of fall into a few different categories, um, like, you have to be facing the base that you throw to when you throw over to the base. If it looks too much like a pitch, that's a balk. Um, if you quick pitch to, to try and speed up your delivery to catch a base dealer, that's a balk. Uh, if you, you can't stand on the rubber without the ball, so you can't do the hidden ball trick um, with the pitcher going back to the mound without the ball in his hand, that's a balk too, and it's specifically to prevent the hidden ball trick. Um, and they all sort of fall into those kinds of categories. So it, it is any attempt to do that, and the, the problem with the, the Gustav call was he didn't actually break any of the 13 specific rules that make nope. up a balk. Um, and so it shouldn't have been called. It was, it's one of those things where it was a little bit of an unusual movement, I guess. It wasn't even that unusual, though. I mean, pitchers walk around on the mound and grab rosin bags and rock back and forth. and do all. I, I mean, Carter Caps drags his feet 10 feet past the, the mound mm-hmm. which is the ball um <laughs> n- what nothing yandel gustav did uh was was a balk it just wasn't by rule and i think an umpire got himself trapped he he, he so- thought he saw something he didn't he saw what he thought was a, what was a bit of a weird movement and called it and then uh you know people have a hard time going back on their calls when they make them and uh so uh he, he didn't go back on his call. The, the The most egregious thing was after the game, the umpires came out to defend that decision, and it's yes. not it's not defensible. It is. It's I was going to say, but Paul, the yes. the crew chief said it was a textbook cut and dried balk. It, it was not. Uh, that's a lie, <laughs> and you shouldn't lie when you do interviews. It would have been nice if a uh, a reporter would have followed up and asked, "Oh, which of the thirteen balk criteria was violated uh, in the course of this delivery?" That would have been nice to see. Um, but that didn't happen. So, um, but th- th- that's what a balk is. And uh, the best thing you can do, like, is uh, if it is, could a base runner have been deceived through the action of the pitcher? That's the first question you should ask yourself. And if the answer is no, it probably wasn't a balk. You know, if it was a weird movement where a base runner wouldn't know what was going on, that's probably a balk. Um, uh, it, it, but if it's like a pitch or just standing there, it's probably not a balk. So, yeah, that's pretty much it. Well, and also, this was a weird situation because you're looking at a situation where the bases were loaded. So there's yes. sort of like a limited chance for doing things. <laughs> yes, he, the runner could have attempted to steal home. And the that is certainly possible. go away when the bases are loaded, but Ryan's point is correct that no one's going to be stealing a base with the bases loaded. <laughs> right. It, it just sort of, it was a weird move. And he like, 
he he started with his foot like in front of the rubber and then it ended up like behind the rubber behind the rubber yeah like almost completely off but not off the rubber and so like that's weird and like it looked unnatural it and did. man did that umpire jump all over it like he was bulking bob davidson and like oh <laughs> i got you i got you i got you he was like super excited to make that call like ooh, i got to make that call and then it was just very definite about it and yeah just like needs that that needs to be looked at and go okay so what actually is the violation here explain what the violation is and try to come up with it because I, I think a lot of different people have now looked at this and I don't think anybody has made the case that that was a legitimate balk. Like other than the umpires themselves, I haven't I haven't seen anything yet. So no, there is no case to be made. It's just simply not. Uh, every pitcher who's looked at it has said that. Every analyst has said that. Um, Seth McClung was in particular very angry about it for some reason. But uh, <laughs> I love that you still follow Seth McClung. <laughs> But it was clearly not a balk. Yeah, it, it's sort of like, uh, you know, the the Supreme Court, right? I, I don't know how to define a balk, but I know it when I see it kind of thing. And that's usually what the umpires go with. It's just, yeah, uh, it, it's it's just nobody ever has a, a clear understanding of it. And just they just make it up along the way. And it really sucks to see that decide a yep. one-run game there. So, all right. Uh, next Patreon question, uh, kind of related to, to Bachgate, comes from Ultimate Vehicle Fight Club, who's asking, would you rather have a better <laughs> offense so that balking in a run doesn't matter in that situation, or better relief pitching so that situation doesn't happen? So, uh, obviously, <laughs> Gustav not, not uh, pitching in that situation, not ideal, but given the events of the day before, not like they could go to Josh Hader or anything like that. So, uh, Paul, I guess either better or. offense, definitely better yeah. offense. He didn't do anything wrong. I don't even like Yandel Gustav, but he, it's not his fault. <laughs> fine. Um, so yes, I would take I would take more runs. That would be great. I mean, the thing is, you're going to be pitching in a certain number of close games, no matter what. If you have a better offense, then it's just more games that you're winning by blowout and fewer games that you're losing by blowout. But you're still pitching in a lot of close games because that's how baseball is. And same thing with the relief pitching. Like you, you're just moving the the window someplace else in the thing. So you're going to have close games no matter what you do. And sometimes in a close game, something stupid like this happens and ends up being the deciding factor and you're not really going to get away from that. So it's just one of those things that happens and you just kind of have to like suck it up. And the thing is, I, I actually saw from Gustave like this this little run here where he was pitching in close games. And aside from that, aside from that phantom balk, his stuff was really nasty. That 98 mile an hour sinker, that is a nasty ass pitch. Yep. And I'm starting to kind of see what the Brewers see in him, yeah, why they like him. It is worth noting. He's been quite a bit better as the season's gone on. So that is true. Yeah. And like, I can kind of get it like, okay, they're, they're trying to work with this and that pitch to be an effective reliever, especially if you're not talking about trying to be like, uh, you know, an eighth inning, ninth inning guy on a good team. If you're just trying to be like a good relief pitcher who can pitch kind of in, in some, some tight situations, but not necessarily even like the highest of leverage, um, really sometimes all it takes is one exceptional pitch and that pitch looks pretty exceptional. That, that, sinker that 98 mile an hour sinker is a pretty damn good pitch and so i get why they're they're 
working with him and why they they want to see if they can make this work. And like I said, aside from that, the the two appearances on Friday and Saturday night, he was pretty damn good. And the only time he gave anything up was when an umpire decided to make up a bot call. That was it. So it's kind of a weird situation, but I, I think it, especially in this era of eight man bullpens, like you're going to have some guys in your bullpen like him that you just have to like accept. They're not the greatest pitcher in the world. And there may come a time when you just have to let them go because they're on a bad run and it just isn't sustainable anymore. But you're going to have to go through a bunch of these guys just because to pitch in 2022, to, to put a pitching staff out there, you're going to need a lot of guys trying to, to pitch effectively. It's just the, the nature of the game right now. Yep. All right. Speaking of trying to pitch effectively, uh, next Patreon question also deals with that San Francisco series, asking about Brandon Woodruff's start, where he kind of labored through things a little bit, and uh, but uh, mostly put together a good outing. Stephen Kurtz is asking, do we need to be concerned about Woodruff blowing on his hand to warm it up in July? <laughs> is this a bad omen for playoff games? Mark Twain supposedly said, the worst winter of my life was the summer I spent in San Francisco. <laughs> So, of course, yeah, with, with Woodruff having uh, Raynaud symptoms, obviously uh, having trouble feeling uh, the ball, kind of, uh, you know, colder extremities. I kind of brought this up at the time, but but you guys assured me they'd be playing in domes and in California anyway. Uh, Paul, <laughs> does San Francisco uh, change your opinion on this at all? A little bit. It, I mean, it is not great that he is seemingly fidgeting with his digits, I mean, come on. It's San Francisco in July. It's freezing <laughs> out there. It's not. So it's oh, not I've, warm. I've sat in that stadium in like literally in July, did two different games and froze my ass off. It is cold. And those yeah, night okay. games out there are cold. The wind in whips the in 50s. off the bay. Yeah, but the wind wind whips in off the bay and it's a cold wind and you freeze. You're sitting there bundled up like it is like January. It is cold. It's like super, super cold. I've done it twice, and it is bad. <laughs> That's fine, so, <laughs> but it's bad because the weather in San Francisco in the summer is going to be the weather in St. Louis in October, September, and yep. um, Atlanta in, uh, like, it's warmer, but it's it gets 50s at night, and for sure in New York. Um, yep. So... And and also San Francisco still kind of around, I guess. I was the new play. The fact that there's an extra playoff spot screws me up now, and I'm just looking at standings. But whatever. Uh, so unless you're in Sandy, I mean, even Los Angeles is is not immune from those kinds of things. So like, there's a lot of places they can go where it's 50 degrees at night, and that's not good when you're getting cold at 50 degrees at night to the extent that you're losing grip on the ball. So uh, it's not great. Hopefully, he will improve. Um, you know, medically as the season goes on. Uh, and I think like when he's right, he still looks good. So that's good. But uh, it's a little worrying because it's it's only getting colder from here on out. It's not getting warmer. Um, so, yeah, it's it's worth worrying about. It's not great. 
Yeah, no, that that part of it is true. The thing is, once they got it adjusted, and I think they brought him one of those little uh, heat packs, right? They, yes, I, I believe that he did have a Green Bay Packers-style sock insert to keep his hands warm. <laughs> yeah, and once they did that, it didn't seem to be a problem anymore. Like, he got his feeling going, and there seemed to be that lull maybe, like, the third inning where he was having trouble with it, and then they seemed to sort of get that sorted, and it was better after that. Because he definitely, in the fourth, fifth, sixth inning, was a much better different pitcher um, than he was to that point, right? Yeah, so, he was. He was. So, like, I think they they kind of maybe figured that out. This was probably the first time he had pitched since being diagnosed with Renaud's, where it was remotely cold, where there was anything like that. So, I guess they, hopefully, the optimistic view on this would be they figured out what they needed to do. They have the the plan in place, and it won't be a problem the next time it happens, hopefully. <laughs> I guess. Hopefully. Hopefully. Otherwise, otherwise he's going to have to pitch with like a Aaron Rodgers hand warmer out there, right? And and maybe he can sneak some sticky stuff inside that too and then <laughs> help himself yep. twice. Okay, speaking of uh, pitcher injuries, I guess you could kind of consider that <laughs> Brandon Woodruff situation an injury or at least a situation to be worked through. Our next question this week comes from Bob Peterson asking, has the number of injuries to Brewers pitchers increased this year than compared to the past? If so, is this a concerning trend? Or are the Brewers more proactive than other teams at identifying minor injuries before they become major? So, you know, aside from Woodruff, you know, we had Aaron Ashby with his uh, forearm scare. We've had Adrian Hauser. We've had Freddie Peralta. It does kind of seem like at least a lot more injuries affecting the the bigger or more important names this year, Ryan, right? Yeah, though it is important to remember that Corbin Burns missed time in both 2019 and 2021. Uh, Brandon Woodruff always misses a little bit of time for something. Like, it, it, it's generally not a major issue, but he misses right down to the his very first major league start. He got scratched because he had no bleak injury and ended up having to wait like six weeks to make his first big league start. So... But in general, yeah, I think there have been more pitcher injuries this year. And I think some of that, Bob is right, that it is them being proactive and putting a guy on the IL sort of very, very quickly. Uh, You could sort of consider them like the um, anti-Wilpon Mets in this regard, where like the Mets would just run out anybody, you know, basically past the point where everybody should have been concerned. And they may be paying for that now with some of what Jacob deGrom is dealing with at this point. But uh, I think the Brewers are very proactive about this stuff. And I think it's important to remember that the the remarkable thing about the Brewers' injuries is not this year having a lot of them. It's that they went through a time period where from like 2017, 18, 19, 20, 21, they just weren't having very many of them. And that's the unusual thing because – Pitchers get hurt. It's the main thing they do. Like that is their their primary function in baseball at this point is to get hurt. So the Brewers have largely avoided. I mean, we're at in terms of big time Tommy John issues to major league starters or major league pitchers at this point. Who do we have? We have Brent Suter and is Cousins TJ? Yeah. Okay. Yep. And Cousins. And, and that was like a second or a third TJ, wasn't it? Right. And Cousins is from like residual from well before he was with the Brewers. This is not a guy right, who's been yeah. like developed with the Brewers. You look at like 
guys like Burns and Woodruff and Peralta and all those guys. And the injuries have been small and minor and generally short that they have had. And they've generally been able to stay on the field for the most part. And this year we're starting to see a little bit of erosion of that, but it's still not anything like, you know, there, there was a, a month or two last year where the Diamondbacks didn't have a guy who was in their opening day rotation make a start for their team for like a two month stretch in like <laughs> June and July. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what pitcher injury like um, badness truly looks like. It's not what we're dealing with. What we're dealing with is a, a lot of little stuff. And hopefully it stays that way. And they seem to have a pretty good idea of how to handle it. Yeah, it seems worse than it. Well, it, it doesn't seem worse than it is because it, there's some bad parts, but it's highlighted by Peralta. They haven't lost uh, a starter of his caliber in quite some time. And the weirdness of um, of Reno syndrome on Woodruff, um, that is, uh, you know, bizarre. It's, it's not something that is a training issue or anything like that. It's just a weird outlier that we don't know how it's going to affect him. So um, those two at the top, make all of the sort of little things underneath look a lot worse than they otherwise would. Like lose, having Miguel Sanchez on the 15-day aisle, who cares? Um, that, that's <laughs> that's the kind of stuff they usually have happen to them over the course of the season. They get guys rested, they get them back. Even Hauser, like, um, you know, I think he'll probably be fine in the grand scheme of things. He's probably just getting an extended rest more than anything. Um, but, you know, all those little precautionary ones and little rest ones and things like that look worse because of the two big ones at the top, one and a half big ones at the top. Right, 100%. All right. I would like to welcome you all now to the Jackson Churio portion of the podcast. (laughs) We've got several questions uh, on uh, Mr. Churio here, fresh off of his Futures game appearance. Uh, First one comes from Stephen Path asking, Jackson Churio is the best Brewers hitting prospect since? Question mark. I feel like We've floated Ryan Braun out here, Paul. Is that is that your answer, or is no? There I'll go. Else in I'll line? go better. I'll go Ricky Weeks. <laughs> oh wow! Wow! <laughs> and that is saying that Ricky Weeks was a better hitting prospect than Ryan Braun, which is a hundred percent true. Which at is true if you look at any ranking system or anything like that. Yeah, that it, it is a hundred percent true. Factual. So yeah, I guess with that in mind, I, I guess it's just rare that we've had a teenager in this spot, right? Usually the Brewers take those college bats like Braun and Weeks are both high-end college bats. Yep. So I guess, Ryan, I don't know how to handle this. <laughs> having a having a teenager like and having to wait several years and hoping he doesn't break along the way. Yeah, it's a new experience for all of us, James. Like I'm not <laughs> I'm not used to this either. This is so stupid. And I've been following Brewers prospects pretty closely for uh, the better part of two decades now. So yeah, this is this is a new one, and I think we've been waiting a long time to have a true Latin American breakout star like this, where you take him and very quickly. Uh, it looks like he has the potential to be a not just like a, a good player from a Orlando Arcia where because he, the defensive floor was so high and because he was at shortstop, you're like, oh, this guy could end up having some, you know, four or five win seasons and therefore he's a pretty good prospect. Trio looks like he could potentially be a superstar, like a generational talent. And yeah, you really have to go back to at least Ryan Braun, if not further than that, to come up with anything close to comparable to this in the Brewers history. So I don't know. You're 
your guess is as good as mine how quickly this might go. I think there is a chance that he does end up moving quickly. I would not be shocked if we saw him in Milwaukee next year, for instance. Um, That's really aggressive. And it's not what I would bet. Like if I was if I was betting when we would see him, I would say early 2023 is more likely. But there is a universe where he just hits so much and just handles every promotion and um, they a need surfaces and they bring him up and he hits the ground running and he gets Juan Soto. You know, like that's basically what happened with Juan Soto. Juan Soto was up as a young 19 year old in the spring of was it 2018 um because he just they they had a need and because it just looked like uh he was he was ready to do it and so yeah you uh you just don't really know there's the playbook on this one is there's very few guys to to look at as comps so you're you kind of have to throw out what you know as like the standard development playbook and just say mm-hmm. This could be really quick. Yeah, I'm trying to think too, because even, you know, like Prince Fielder came up pretty young too, but he obviously had lots of doubts along the way as a prospect just because of his weight and his body type. It, it, this is a completely different level than that too. Well, Prince Fielder was drafted in 2002 in the Moneyball draft, the famous line from Billy Bean about like, you know, uh, we're not selling jeans here, but Prince Fielder's like, too fat even, even for Even this one, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And what was funny about it is Prince Fielder ended up having a great career and really was yeah. on the field day in and day out throughout his career until the point where his back just broke down on him because his swing was so violent and eventually you know screwed up the back and they just told him you can't play baseball anymore because it's dangerous to your long-term health. Um, but even then, he was drafted in 2002 and he came up in 2005. Yeah. So like, and that was, he was drafted as a high school kid, not yep. as a 16 year old when like with Churio signs as, at 16, mm-hmm. there's still a world of difference there. And then throw in all of the, the other stuff with the fact that Churio is adjusting to a new country and all of the, the things that go on. I mean, try to imagine it was a, a jarring experience for me as a 16 year old to spend two and a half weeks on you know, like on a school trip to Germany and to the Netherlands. That was a jarring experience for me as a as a 16-year-old. And like Churio's doing this like a year or two later and moving here away from his family. And like yeah. picking up his life. And so just trying to 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 understand and comprehend how difficult that is is it's almost too much for me to even try to imagine. So the next natural question is uh, from Jay Google. Uh, Soto for Churio? <laughs> I'll never forgive you, Jay. I'll never forgive you. <laughs> or I, or I hate, Soto for Ashby, Freilich, and others. So much. <laughs> uh, of course, uh, you know the news that uh, Juan Soto turned down a what was it a fifteen-year, four hundred million dollar contract from the Nationals? Four hundred and forty. Uh, or forty. Four hundred forty. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, after four hundred, who's counting? But yeah, fifteen years. I, I would shy away from fifteen years with that organization too. I can't blame him. But then the news came out that the Nationals now entertaining trade offers for him, even though he's two and a half years away from free agency. So, Jay's question here. Would you do any of that, Churio, or a package, you know, involving Ashby, Freilich, and others? Would you do it just for two and a half years of Juan Soto? 
And I think I said on Twitter, my answer is an enthusiastic yes, because two and a half years is a pretty long time to have a generational 23-year-old MVP uh, with the best on-base percentage to start a career since Ted Williams, Paul. I, yeah. I don't know where you land. Uh, I'm torn on this one, too, because I'm not a prospect hugger at all. Um, but I do have some trepidation on Churio specifically. I think part two of Jay's question, um, yeah, fine. I don't care about Ashby or Frelick or, or, or others. <laughs> um, but um, I do... So And Soto's a... Um, uh, this is very unusual just because of how young he is. Um, you know, if this was a normal timeline where a guy's entering his like 26, 27 season, like that's peak now for most players. That's a much different question, but you're, you're going to get Soto for two and a half years, uh, for his age, like 24, 25, 26 seasons, he's going to still be awesome unless something really, we- really, really, really weird happens. So I think I do it. Um, I, I do think I go Soto for Churio. I'm, I probably put more more thought into that than I should have because Soto is awesome and Churio, um, you know, he he might be anything even a boat. Um, so um, I, I, I do it and I think about it a little too long. But, yeah, I do it. I think you have to do like Soto for Churio straight up yep. or the Soto for Ashby Freilich and others, depending on how many others you're talking about. I think you have to do these things. <laughs> I yeah, think you that do. that's you do. That is true. What I do want to say about this and what I was trying to get at on Twitter when I was discussing this and making people mad is that it's more complicated than you kind of realize and that it changes the composition of the team a lot. And I think that people don't want to talk about those things and don't want to consider those things. But like Juan Soto is going to make over the next two years upwards of $50 million in arbitration. So that instantly changes how the Brewers structure their team um, immediately. Gone is the the building through depth thing that they've been doing, where that has really been the hallmark of the David Stearns era is building through depth. They're going to be far more stars and scrubs at that point. And I know people are yelling at their radios right now and saying, no, you just add the payroll. You just say, okay, we're going to add the $25 million <laughs> of Juan Soto and on top of whatever else they were already going to spend. And then it's just the same and it's fine. And you can make that case and you can say that that's like the way it should be. And I can agree with you on that, but that's not the way it, it is. That's not, yeah. that's not actually how it would be. Like I don't know. Uh, so uh, obviously it, you just can't print money out of thin air, but it's, yeah, that is a lot of money, objectively speaking, but it's such a discount on him specifically. You know, yeah. it's it's one of those things where um, you are getting a Rolls Royce for the price of like a Huffy. Um, and so <laughs> it, while, while you might be a little kid who gets a $2 allowance every week, you, you got to shell out the Huffy money for the Rolls. You just have to do it. Um, there's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. There's that. But also, like, it, it, realistically, if you make this trade, we're not just talking about Churio. We're talking about Churio plus Ashby, plus Freilich. Yeah. You're probably talking about three or four players, at least a few of them, either in the majors or close to the majors, or guys who would impact those rosters over the next two years. You're also taking those low price players out of the mix, right? And you're saying, okay, now you have to replace them as well. So you're cutting into your depth that way as well. Um, it's just, it's a trickier thing to do, I think, than what, people just immediately like the knee-jerk reaction is yeah you do it and like whatever um it's it's a lot more tricky to manage and i think it would be 
you would see some downsides to it. You would see some holes opening on the roster that uh, you think they have holes now in their roster. I think you'd see some much bigger holes opening up at that point, and you'd have to hope that Juan Soto's prodigious bat can carry you through some of those problems in a way that uh, justifies that acquisition. And that's not how David Stearns and has built this team to this point. Like they've really, you know, they, when they did have the superstar in, in Christian Yelich in 2018 and 2019, they still weren't paying like anything close to full freight for it. You know, they were paying at a pretty deep discount of what a, a superstar makes. Um, so, I mean, you'd also be looking at like, what does that mean for for the next two years? You've got Yelich and Soto taking up forty percent of the payroll, fifty percent of the payroll. Well, thirty thirty to forty percent of the payroll of any quality player that you have add. That's going to be true because Yelich is right. most of that. So, I mean, that's annoying because Yelich sucks now. But well, Yelich would be half of that money. Because Soto's going to make, he's making 18 this year in his first year of arbitration, probably be up to about 23, 24 next year, probably goes up to close to 30 in his last year, maybe a little bit over that, depending on how good his, you know, he's not having an exceptional year this year, but yeah, and actually I was a little surprised when I was looking up for another question, he was out of the top page of uh, Fangraph's War, uh, their top 30, I think he was down at like 32 or 33 for Fangraph's War for the year. His OPS plus is still 160, so he's... Right. He's not having a bad year. He's just not quite having the exceptional season he was having. And also, there's his, some defensive... His B-ref, his B-ref war is 3.3. So Sure. Uh, that's... <laughs> and I will grab his warp when I get a chance. Um, I still think you do it in a in, in a hot minute for, for him. Also, the other thing that I thought about when, uh, when I was coming to my yes conclusion is... Uh, after one and a half years, if you happen to be bad or out of contention, you can deal him to a rich team for prospects too that it can extend right. him. So there's that option as well. Right. Absolutely. All right. Um, kind of along the same lines, right? Because I think Juan Soto is definitely on this short list. But our next question comes from Mark Podscarby asking, who is the worst MLB player you would trade Jackson Churio for? And I think we were all talking before the podcast, and we all really love this question because the opportunities are kind of uh, differ based on how you you look at this question. So I guess, Paul, on your short list... Who's the worst player you would trade Jackson? I hate for? this question so much, and but it's uh, so good. It's a good I, question, Paul. It a is. It question. is a good question. It's a really good question I, that I don't want to answer. Um, so I, 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 I got a couple guys that I think are right on the border where I, I I'm probably too much of a prospect hugger, but um, like, like maybe like Ian Happ, like he's he's okay, he's versatile. He's 27, so um, r- right around there, I think, is like my cutoff. Um, like, uh, if you're older than Ian Happ, you have to be a lot better than Ian Happ for me to do the deal. <laughs> and if you're younger than Ian Happ, you still have to be kind of Ian Happy to, to do the deal. <laughs> so I think that, that's sort of, he's my line of, of where I do that. On the old end, the Ian Happ I think, line. Yeah. Um, like, I, I think um, I looked at Jose Abreu for a little bit who is still an awesome first baseman, but he's 35. So I, I think I, have, I need 
slightly younger than 35 at Jose Abreu numbers in defense. So that, that that's sort of my spectrum on this. Oh, yeah. Like, I wouldn't trade for him for, like, a guy over 30, I don't think. I, I think that would yeah. just break my well, brain. Like, well, would... you're only getting two and a half years of Soto, and we just said that you would do that. So if you get an older player that you can project to be a very good player for just two, two and a half years, I think that you still have to do it. So Yeah, but you're not I, I getting think... a guy as good as Soto because those guys basically you're don't not. exist. That's, you're right, you're right. <laughs> so that's that's kind of part of the problem. I was just sort of looking at the list. This is why I was on that Fangraphs page in particular and just sort of looking down. Uh, first off, I just threw pitchers out right away because I'm n- not trading Jack Sechuria for a pitcher. So <laughs> that's not going to happen. Um, and we're talking one-on-one here, just like straight up one for one. Yep. And like, I don't know. I probably should be willing to trade him for, say, Andres Jimenez who's become a very good player for Cleveland and is sort of vital to their their young uh, player turnaround right now. But I just like can't bring myself to want to do that because Andres Jimenez is going to be a very solid player in the big leagues for quite a while, and I, I feel comfortable about that. But he's not going to be a superstar, and Jackson Trio could be a superstar, and I have a hard time like doing that. So I'm, I, I kind of keep looking down here, and I'm like, well, I probably should trade him for somebody like Taylor Ward, right? Like Taylor Ward, who's having a 286, 380, 492 season and looks really good. But then I'm like, but he's having kind of a breakout out of nowhere. And how much do I trust that he's actually this guy now? Um, so, yeah, he's got a 150 WRC plus. And so I should trade Jackson Churio for that guy. But I just I don't trust it because, it's, uh, you know, it's a breakout and all of that. And then you get into like young players who are on cost control forever. And it's like, yeah, if, if we could trade him for key Brian Hayes, I would do that in a hot sure. minute yeah. um, because yep. he's now on a good contract too, especially like he's locked in for a long time and all of that. Um, oh, there's Ian Happ at 54 on this list. So <laughs> there he is. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard. Like I, I probably should be willing to trade him for like Gavin Lux. Gavin Lux is a guy I, I, I probably would trade him for just straight up. I would say, okay, I will, I will do that for you Dodgers. But then you think about it and you're like, what if we just gave the Dodgers like a generational superstar for yes. you know, Gavin Lux? Like who is a good mm-hmm. prospect and is now kind of making good on that for the first time this year. But, you know, 292, 366, uh, 369, 415, like, there's nothing special about that. It's good. He's a good player. This is just. So this is a really, really hard one. And I am a prospect hugger, and I'm proud of it. And it's been in my Twitter bio for years now. <laughs> years. Prospects are for hugging. And I, I just, I, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to contemplate this question. And I hate Jay for bringing up the other one in the first place. (laughs) This is a good question. So I I like this one. But Jay, yours is bad. (laughs) All right. Uh, I guess a less happy prospect question, uh, a prospect we thought was going to be, you know, generational talent, center of the lineup kind of guy. Uh, but hasn't turned out that way. Keston Hira got demoted back down to AAA, uh, despite the power this year, still striking out at absurd rates, and, and it finally caught up to him. So a question from Chris Richards here asking, 
Keston's demotion seems to suggest more than an immediate roster crunch. He's become a 3TO player with no defensive position. I would be curious to hear your assessment of his future with the Brewers and whether he has much trade value given the above profile. So we've kind of talked about this a little bit in previous weeks, and we even saw the Brewers try to play him in left field with uh, some disastrous throws as a result. It was not fun to watch. It was maybe funny if it wasn't sad. Uh didn't quite work out and he's back down in triple a now despite at least being able to hit some home runs but uh i guess ryan we'll start with you prospect hugger extraordinaire is he just irreparably irreparably broken now is is this who he is a guy with no position who can't really even make contact i mean i think this is what he is for the brewers i think at this point if he was going to be something different for the Brewers without having like an overhaul done to his game, he would have happened by now. So from that perspective, it's probably time for him to move on elsewhere. And that's, that's fine. That happens. It's part of the game. It is a thing that happens. But I think that as far as trade value, that's a sort of a different question. And I think that there are some teams that could potentially take him back as part of a deal that's not meaningless I think we, we talked about it on here, the idea of him being a key piece in like a Ramon Laureano deal. I could see that. I could see the A's considering him something of value in that deal. It, he wouldn't be the only piece, but I could see him being a piece of value in a trade like that. Um, but I think really going back to his the, the, where he started here, I think this was an immediate roster crunch problem. Like they, they did have an immediate roster crunch, and I think they do – if, if he's still on this team past the trade deadline, I think we're going to see him back on the team in the majors at some point. I, I think that that's going to happen. So I think this was kind of a, a an immediate roster crunch situation. But, um, yeah, it, it's disappointing. I think about the Brewers fan shirt. Have you guys ever seen the one that was uh, – um, there was Yelich and Hira uh, uh, 2020? Uh, nope. You guys yes, ever saw? I saw. I you've saw seen that, that shirt. It was. It's unfortunate. I kind of want to get it just because it's unfortunate now. <laughs> but yes. But at that time, you have to put yourself in the frame of mind of coming out of 2019. What you thought this team was at that point was two superstar hitters in Christian Yelich and Keston Hira, and then a bunch of question marks around that, and then pitching, right? Like good pitching, and then the. Uh, the question marks surrounding, uh, you know, after those two guys. And that has not turned out to be what this team is at all. Yeah. And it just goes to show you that you can't predict baseball and that so much changes that trying to plan even like a few years out, even trying to plan like a year out mm-hmm. is really, really hard to do with any sort of accuracy because so much changes. <clears throat> And that's why Juan Soto for two and a half years is so valuable. Uh, Paul, I uh, guess your, your your take on Hira is, is it, it's just time to move on, do you think? Yeah, it, it, he, in any trade, too, he's he's frosting. He's not cake at this point. He uh, <laughs> uh, The big problem is just the, the defensive issues just give him such a low floor. Um, and it, the bat, even if you project it as having sort of the best upside that's reasonable out of that, um, he's still going to be a very middling productive player because he's going to be stuck at first base or DH or, or playing something quite badly. I mean, they, they can stick him out in left field all they want, but it's just not going to work in for anybody long-term at all. 
So um, it, there's just very, uh, there's huge, uh, not risk, but uh, it, it, he just might not be any good at all. And, and the upside's just not as high as it once was because um, he only can potentially provide one avenue of, of value generation. And even that's pretty speculative. So I, yeah, I think if I was betting, I think Keston's pretty toast. And uh, they should definitely get him a change of scenery to see if somebody can fix that battle a little bit more than it is this year. Uh, but it's just not looking good. Um, the the arm and the lack of mobility really cost him uh, in terms of what he could have been. He's that really good frosting in between the two layers, though. Like that really, <laughs> the, like in the the good wedding cake, that that stuff that's right in between the two layers, like buttercream frosting. Yeah, or, that he's yeah. that kind of frosting. It, like I'll, I'll take it's your terrible his... for you, but it, it 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 can be fun from time to time. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I think that is actually that is perfect. It's terrible for you, but it can be fun from time to time. Yes. All right. Uh, another trade related question. This one comes from M Santana saying, I saw there was a Bob Nightingale tweet, grain of salt <laughs> in parentheses, stating the Brewers would be willing to trade Omar Narvaez and or Colton Wong. I was intrigued by that. What are y'all's <laughs> thoughts? So I guess maybe this kind of goes with the idea of, of the counter building that we maybe talked about recently as well um and obviously catcher a position of strength so maybe it makes sense that they would deal from this but uh paul i guess your take on possibly trading omar narvaez so, or colton wong i am 100 percent sure that they are in fact willing to trade both of those guys um colton wong for one likely won't be with the team for a much longer than his replacement is already on the roster and omar is good but they're good at making catchers and um, there's no reason that they can't replace him very easily. So uh, in terms of are they available? Yeah, I think they're probably available. I don't think teams will be beating down their door to get Colton Wong and Omar Narvaez. No, right. It's not impossible, but uh, Omar maybe more like if you've got a disastrous catcher situation, he would fix it up pretty nicely. So maybe. Um, but Colton's not offering you. I mean, um, Colton Wong's defensive decline has not been great for well the Brewers, but his value because he's not a bat first player. He's a field first player with a decent bat, a bat that's average at best. Um, and and most teams aren't looking for like a uh, meh second baseman. Uh, if you're going to trade for somebody, think about what the Brewers do. You want some versatility um, to cover multiple positions. Colton's not that. Um, and uh -huh. the way he's been playing this year, he does not fill a lot of gaping holes for contenders. And nobody's going to pick him up. That's you know not a contender. So I mean, so yes, I, Nightingale's technically probably right. I would imagine that those two are two guys that they wouldn't be that mad about parting with. But it doesn't matter. Um, maybe Omar matters a little bit. I, I just don't see it happening. That those are not the guys who go after on the Brewers. If you're trading with the Brewers for major league players, you probably want pitching back. Um, that's probably where you're going to shoot for. Yeah. And the Brewers have kind of a problem with that right now because their own they pitching do. situation isn't as deep as it often has been in recent years. So yeah. they probably can't really trade from that. I'm with Paul on all this. Narvaez and Wong could get moved. It would take a, a very specific team and a very specific weird set of circumstances to make this happen. But sure, I could see it happening. It it would be, especially with, with Wong. You're right. If somebody really has a hole at second base, or really has a desperate need for a number one hitter who's more of a number nine hitter. Great. <laughs> like that's, that's fine. Yep. But 
you know, both are useful players, especially Nervais. Both are useful players, and you're fine having them on the team. Yep. But there's also the the shelf life is running out on them as well. So I I don't expect to see a trade like this, but it wouldn't completely stun me if there was some weirdness in the, a deal like this. We do see some strange trades sometimes at the deadline. Yeah. And, you know, Narvaez trading for catchers midseason is always kind of iffy, right? Teams don't like to add a new catcher in the middle of their pitching staff, and it takes an adjustment period. And by the time they're they're settled, you know, season's almost over. But yeah. maybe he could be somebody for somebody, a team that comes up short in the Wilson Contreras sweepstakes or whatever. I don't know. But, um, yeah, I, I don't see it being likely, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you guys, I'm sure, especially with how Victor Caratini's kind of taken to the team and the staff. Uh, they, they may be more willing to move on from Narvaez at this point. So we shall see what happens. All right. Uh, one last Patreon question this week comes from Chris Huber asking, has the luck of getting in an unsolicited Twitter fight with Keith Holberman worn off? <laughs> what, are you, what is he talking about? I did not catch this. I assume it's your old one. Um, I but, don't uh, think I ever got into a fight with Keith Olbermann. You did too. Um, did that I? happened like two months ago. Yeah, he he yelled he, at you on so, because oh. I, I put it I put it in a podcast uh, tease as ask us some questions. Maybe Keith Olbermann will yell at you because it uh, happened. <laughs> yeah, he randomly yelled at me, but it was like a fight because I don't think I ever even responded to it. It was just weird. It was like he he yelled at me something kind of tangentially related to something I tweeted, and it was weird. Yeah, and, I was. Okay. Uh, I got I got sort of yelled at. Um, it was not unsolicited though. It was when he unsolicitedly yelled at Lindsay Adler, and right. uh, oh I was, yes, I was piling on him, so I got solicited uh, yelled at by Olbermann, But a lot of people did. So um, that uh, that happened. But I mean, he does that. He it's a it's a history of him doing that. And um, yeah, that, yeah I he's think a that big weirdo. He's he, a, he's yeah. a huge huge weirdo. He thinks he's like the guardian of baseball lore and. Um, he's just a weird guy. And he, you know what? He also thinks he's the guardian of like left-wing political lore too. So uh, he can get you two different ways. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he doesn't have a job now, so he's got too much time to spend on Twitter. Anyway. He does. My understanding is Craig Kilborn's kind of withdrawn from public life a little bit and doesn't really yeah. do anything out there. So I don't think you can yeah. really get into a fight with him. He seems like you know his public persona is very prickly, and that would happen. But I don't think he does that kind of thing. So, so yeah, um, I should I should ask the rest of Chris, Chris's question here because uh, I, I oh yeah stop there. But uh, if, if the luck of Olbermann has worn off, who's the next '90s era Sports Center anchor that one of the hosts control for a second half bump? Chris did say Craig Kilburn seems ripe for the picking, but it's probably Paul, Kenny Main, right? Is he still alive? Oh, and Kenny, Kenny Main tweets all the time. Alive. I follow him. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, so I mean, yeah. he's he's the answer, right? I mean. I think it's Maybe. him. What about John Anderson? Because he's a Wisconsin guy and a Brewers fan. Oh, that's true. That's true. So, that's like, too. John Anderson has been that weird guy who never, like, most guys, you, you start as a sports center anchor, you work your way up to, like, the, the, the prime spot in that, and then you go become, like, a specialist in some particular area. You know, your Trey Wingos, your Rich Eisens, and oftentimes you end up leaving the network and going someplace else. And, like, John Anderson has just stayed, like, and done sports center as far as i know like that's all yeah. he's ever really done and that's weird and it's a strange career but like more power to him i guess yep yeah i don't know i was gonna say dan patrick because that you know that's a natural keith olbermann link yeah yeah there. that's true that would be uh, completing I, is the... he still is he still doing his radio show or has he stepped away i don't know 
But, you know, I think that's a good one because I think they're of the age where they have opinions and they're more and more frequently not right. Right. (laughs) Um, So it's easier to get in a fight with those people. Um, But, yeah, I I, I don't know. I, I think that would probably be my play. So there we go. All right. Uh, one last Twitter question, I think, or a couple of Twitter questions before we wrap up for the week. I know we're running long this time, but uh, hey, it's the All-Star break. We got nothing else to talk about for a week. So uh, this one was from Mad Max on Twitter. And I know, Ryan, you already kind of responded mm-hmm. online, but I thought it was an interesting question. So I wanted to bring it on the on the main pod here. So uh, Max's question was, what are the primary drivers for Craig Council's recent changes in management philosophy of regularly leaving his starters in with 100-plus pitches compared to the old version of himself who often had a quicker hook and didn't like his guys facing the order three times. Is it more trust in his starting staff than he had in 2018 or 19, lack of trust in his bullpen as a whole, or something else? So, Ryan, I guess kind of a long question, but we've kind of seen him push that you know with Woodruff in the last week and especially with Corbin Burns, who's actually one of the league leaders in pitches per outing this year uh i guess what's your your feeling on that has there been really a shift or is it just circumstantial i think it's mostly circumstantial here because you're looking at in their last starts thursday through saturday uh all three went over 108 pitches which is a lot under craig council that is those are big numbers uh i think burns was up in the mid-teens and so was woodruff and those are big numbers and they're eye popping, but I think it's mostly because they know council knew that those guys were about to get a eight day, nine day break. So, and I think that's exactly what's happening. Burns is starting on Friday coming out of the all-star break. So Corbin Burns will have had uh, seven days of rest in between starts. So knowing that he pushed him a little bit further and I, I'm sure he also had by that point, he knew Burns wasn't going to be going to the all-star game. So he was just purely going to be getting a rest. And so, let that go a little bit. And I think that that's mostly what this is. I think we have seen him go a little bit deeper and be a little bit more willing to take his good pitchers deeper into games at certain times. This generally doesn't happen early in the season and it doesn't happen in, in, um, in certain circumstances, but in, in other circumstances, you do see this from time to time. And I think that it makes sense because Part of why Council was so quick on the hook in, say, 2017, 2018 was there were a lot of holes in the rotation and a lot of guys that you didn't trust to get outs past, you know, the second time through the order or very yep. deep into that third time. Like Wade Miley. Why would you trust Wade Miley to do that? Why, you know, Gio Gonzalez. Yeah. Or, or a young Brandon Woodruff or a young Corbin Burns or, totally. you know, or a young Freddie Peralta. Though you weren't trusting those guys at that point to do that. Now... You have a, 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 a workload built up. You have a, a, a sense of what these guys are capable of. And so you're going to let it go a little bit more. But still, mostly, Council doesn't like guys pitching much above 100 pitches. And that has been, I think, to their benefit, by and large. They've, they've stayed pretty healthy with that, uh, uh, with that philosophy, more so than not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think those are all really good explanations and yeah, it's pretty obvious. He has his guys that he trusts. Right. And uh, Burns and Woodruff specifically have shown that they can be workhorses and not have that affect their performance down the line. Right. So I think that has something to do with it as well. So 
and and those are guys you definitely want to be able to <laughs> do that when we get to October, hopefully. So uh, definitely all all good reasons there, and we'll see how he handles them this first start out of the break with that extended rest there as well. All right. Uh, I know we ran long this time, so we'll kind of wrap it up for this week. Uh, appreciate everybody for their questions. Uh, definitely a lot of good questions, even if they were, you know, born out of frustration <laughs> with the way the Brewers ended the first half. But uh, I think a, a lot of interesting things to talk about, even heading into the second half. So uh, in the meantime, we would appreciate it, even if you're not a patron. If you want to support us a different way, go and leave us a review and rating for this podcast. Paul's going to read literally anything you write in a review if you give us five stars. Uh, so there's your incentive to do that as well. Yep. Uh, in, in Additionally, you know, aside from uh, giving us joy that way, you help us out by <laughs> Increasing us up the baseball podcast rankings and getting us out to more Brewers fans, too, especially as we get into the second half of the season and the playoff chase. So that would be greatly appreciated. And while you're there, please do hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast. Make sure that you don't miss an episode here. Uh, we're going to wrap things up here, but the draft is still going on. So as Ryan said at the top, be sure to look out for that minor league extra for the draft recap uh, with Ryan and James Anderson. See how many uh, kids named Jackson or Braxton or Jace or whatever get picked by the Brewers. Caden. Caden. Blade. Yeah. Blade Tidwell just got drafted. Blade Tidwell, Tidwell. to the Mets. <laughs> oh, my computer God. generated. Who is the other guy? That, so the Mets have a blade and a jet now. So that, oh, yeah. that's becoming a hell of a draft class just name-wise. 80 names on the scouting scale. Mm-hmm. So that, that's always good to see. All right. Uh, that'll do it for this week, everybody. Uh, thanks again for listening. And we will see you here next week as we start the second half of the season.